Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I have the honor to welcome back Matthew Silver as my guest. If you recall from Matt's first appearance two weeks ago, he's the CEO and founder of Cambrian Innovation. And if you missed our first pass, you maybe don't know yet that Cambrian is a revolutionary provider of distributed wastewater treatments and resource recovery solutions. Now, while last time we focused on the technical side of this venture, Matt started on an ASA grant, this week's episode is all about the business side of the Watertown-based company. In our discussion, Matt will share how starting a venture in the water industry was much harder than what he thought, and how even when you can prove a new solution to be better, market adoption is not a given. He'll take us behind the scenes of his aha moment that changed Cambrian Innovation's destiny, introducing water energy purchase agreements, and how Cambrian achieves to deliver top-notch treatment performance while providing back clean water and energy below utility prices. You'll see that we also explore the hypothesis of building the next big thing in the water industry with hyper-growth strategies, having an impact, exploring new verticals and new business models, acquiring another market player, and so much more. Now, before letting our sponsor share his word, I'll need you to help me help you. Sounds weird, right? But you have the power to bring more guests like Matt on that microphone. And all you have to do, therefore, is to open your favorite podcatcher and give the podcast a five-star review and a comment. Let me share you what Roman 8 and 9 shared on Apple Podcast. And I'll try not to blush while reading. This podcast is a great example of edutainment. I'm learning so much about the current situation with our words water supply, but also just genuinely enjoy listening because of the host. He's got such a welcoming, down-to-the-earth energy, and it makes me feel like I'm just listening to a friend talk. Definitely gonna tell my friends about this. It really is such an important topic that I don't think a lot of people think about. But I'm glad someone is leading the conversation. Cheers. So thanks. Thanks a lot, Romanetta9. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Matthew Silver, which is now up right after this. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Matt. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be back. Uh, since our last discussion, don't think I'm obsessed, but somehow I'm obsessed with the fact that your company is headquartered in, in, in Watertown. And I think that is such a coincidence to be in such a town, I mean, Watertown, that I, I had a look, I wanted to find something crispy about, uh, about the city. And I found a list which was listing the, the worst places to live in, in Massachusetts. And I was hoping for Watertown to be there so that I would have something bad to say. But unfortunately, it seems to be one of the prettiest places. <laughs> so it's really at the bottom of that list. So I kept on seeking and I found out that Actually, Elisa Dushku is born in Watertown, which probably people, everybody forgot about her, but she was one of these vampire slayers in Buffy, the vampire slayer. <laughs> so I thought, I know someone in Watertown, but 
that's still not this crispy anecdote I'm looking for. So can you tell me something about Waterton? I, I don't know, something which is a, a bit, you know, a bit different so that I can stop this stupid obsession. Oh, can I tell you something about Watertown? Um, I don't have anything great other than I mentioned last time that there is a water company that was founded in Watertown that was pretty well known for a while called Ionics. And they were acquired by GE and what I think was the largest water acquisition or close to it at the time by GE Water when they were building out their water business. So there's a history of water innovation in Watertown, which is itself ironic. Other than that, I don't know. It's right by Cambridge. It's getting to be a pretty um, interesting place. I think it's got a number of, uh, historically, I think there was a high percentage of uh, Portuguese immigrants, if I've got my facts right. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, that's about all I got. You know what? Let's put my silly obsession on ice. And if we talk again in five years, I guess uh, if I go back to Wikipedia to the list of famous people which achieved something in Watertown, I hope you're, you're going to be there. And then you are going to be my crispy anecdote about uh, <laughs> Watertown. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know about that. To start today, what, what I would be interesting in is to understand what happened before you arriving in Watertown. I mean, You created a company, you created Cambrian uh, Innovation. You didn't, didn't do that alone, did you? No, I had a co-founder and a lot of folks helping out. So I was wondering, you know, I've done water engineering studies and I have to admit that over my full engineering path, it never crossed my mind to create my own company. So what is the mindset you had to start with that, to start this venture? Yeah, I think... Probably if I had done water engineering, I would not have started a water company. Maybe that's one way to say it. But um, it was an evolution for me to start the company. I, I had worked in aerospace and specifically on, you know, ast what's called astronautics and, and space systems design. And I had worked at the Canadian Space Agency and it was a really cool project to build a greenhouse on Devon Island in the Arctic to do sort of uh, plant growth, autonomous plant growth. And that was fun and went to MIT to, uh, to, and was in the space systems lab, uh, the space architecture group, and then the space systems lab and did some really cool stuff for NASA. And I think that at the end of all that working in aerospace, I decided that I think I had a job offer at, at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Lab, um, which would have been great. And I just decided that it that I'd rather start my own thing. And there was a lot of places like MIT or Stanford or, or those places. There's a lot of people talking about startups and innovation and all of that. And I was particularly interested in synthetic biology and biotechnology because it was kind of a new way to think about bioengineering using a more engineering approach and systemic approach. And it you know, was, was convinced it had enormous potential to be applied outside of uh, where biotech is traditionally applied in pharma. And so I started digging into that and someone made me aware, I forgot who of this, this technology's bioelectrochemical systems. And it just seemed really cool. It seemed like an interesting technology because it was at the intersection of electrochemistry, fuel cells, biology, and had application in a number of areas. So we, you know, formed a little company to do applied R&D around it. And that was really the start. It was no grand scheme of like, we're going to take over the water industry. It was more like, this is a very interesting technology with a lot of applications. And let's just see where it goes. As we got into it, I did learn that what I didn't know at first, which is that water 
challenges are enormous, that a lot of folks are looking for better solutions and it's very important for the world and for the environment to develop them, but it's very hard to do. And I think I'm, you know, maybe unfortunately drawn to difficult challenges because I like to try to solve them. So it just was a good mix, good problem and an interesting potential solution. Actually, there's kind of a pattern in the water world. If you look at the universities, the schools, there are many kind of innovations on in how how you could treat water, how you could be almost disruptive with the way you, you address the, the water challenges. But then there's the other side of the coin, which is when it comes to the industrial size, the real world, if I might say so, it gets much more difficult to come with a new idea and to not even disrupt, but slightly change how people do things. And I think the sentence here you hear the most is, we've been doing like that for 20 years and it works. So why do, should we change something? So as a newcomer in that industry, how difficult was it to get you your first foot in the door? It was very difficult, I'll be honest. And it was harder than I thought it was going to be. And you have to be pretty determined to make it happen. The thing I've said in the past is that industries like IT or, or you know, pharma biotech, they benefit from you know, there, there's a lower number of uncertainties. It's never really in question whether you can complete a software program. It's just really a business model question whether it's sticky or not. And uh, similarly, in like in pharma, biotech, there's never a question of whether the market's going to adopt your drug if it works. So it's really just a, an R&D effort and usually with a very known large market. And whereas in, in some of these other areas, you know, what people now call hard tech, energy, water, those kinds of industries, if you're trying to come up with a new process, you have multiple stages of uncertainty in a very conservative market that may not even adopt the solution, even if it's better. And so you have to show something works at a small scale. You have to scale it, which itself may not work. Then you have to convince someone to do a demonstration plan, which you know that may or may not work over a period of time at scale. And then if that works, you need to make sure that the thing is adopted and um, accepted by industry, which we, we talked last time about the challenge of conservative consulting engineers and conservative customers and everything you said. So it is a real challenge and it requires, you know, a combination of different things to get it right. And I think it's very easy to get wrong. So, you know, when I was preparing for that episode, I was trying to, to do some reverse engineering and thinking you have this water energy purchase agreement which you teased last time and which I would like to go in depth today to understand in the last detail how, how that works. But the reverse engineering aspect came from, I was thinking, how did you come with that idea? And I was thinking, you have this EcoVault, which we, we saw last time as a product. And under such an agreement, it, it gets EcoVault as a service. And I was thinking, oh, probably you have done that because that was a way to get a better market acceptance because you are just breaking the, the entry barrier to that new technology. Am I fully wrong with that assertion? Or what was the background? How did you come with this idea of delivering water as a service? You're not wrong. That was a part of it. When we finished one of our demonstration installations and several years ago, I was speaking with a customer and they said, look, this sounds really interesting, but I think it looks better than the alternative but you don't have enough of a track record for me to be convinced. So can you install it? And then I'll pay you if it works. And that got me looking into that and thinking about it. And um, I did look into 
you know, at the time, some of the really successful solar companies like Sunrun and Sun Edison and some of these other companies, and obviously some of them got ahead of themselves a little bit on the financing side, but, um, but the model worked. And so I thought of it as a way to make things less risky for the customer to make a big decision around the technology. Um, in developing the model, I realized that it's also just a generic problem in the, in the distributed water space that in distributed industrial water space, although even in sort of small scale municipal that, that folks don't have a lot of operating expertise and don't really want to. And so it's just better for a lot of customers to make it our business, to manage the whole thing and provide it as a service. So there's a lot of value there beyond just risk reducing the technology. So I have a hobby in that podcast is that every one or two episodes, I figure myself that um, I'm running an industrial site and then I can be the customer. It's, it's a good thing because um, when it's pure theory, it doesn't cost much. But with my eyes as an operator of that industrial facility, I was having a look at your brochure and for everybody listening right now, here's what you offer. So it's a, a zero money down, zero operational burden straightforward payment structure it grows with the facility because that's what we discussed last time there is this um, modularity uh, of your system you maximize the sustainability and, and you give me peace of mind as you just teased it because i don't have to care about my wastewater treatment and you know i have to be the skeptic at some point so isn't it a bit too good to be true can we deconstruct it uh, piece by piece starting by the, the zero money down aspect that means You come and install something. It doesn't cost me a penny. Everything you need from me is a bit of space. Yeah, that's exactly right. On top of that, if I got it right, I get back from your facility energy and water below the utility price. How's that even possible? Uh, well, it depends on the site and it depends on what you need. But if you take the all-in cost of water, so both the input cost, which is usually pretty low, although depending on where you are, it might be higher, the cost per gallon you're paying for, for, for clean water. And then the treatment side, a lot of industrial manufacturers have surcharge fees that can be very high, or they're not on a sewer and they need, um, they need to treat something just to, in order to be in compliance. And so if you put those together, Um, and then you add the value of the clean water and the clean energy and the treatment services, it doesn't make any sense for someone to do this unless it's below those costs and, and often significantly below. The other thing that a lot of our customers are seeing is that the rates for disposing of wastewater and the relative ease of accessing clean water are changing. And on the first one, it, they're rising faster than inflation. It's I think it's like 6% per year nationally, in part because we haven't invested enough in our water infrastructure. So that they're seeing those rates go up very quickly. We can cap that rise and give them sort of a more certainty on their, on their costs as well. Uh, and there's other people where the cost is, is much higher than that even because, you know, they're on a small, small utility and they're overloading the system and they need to get something done. So, so it's uh, a great value proposition for them because it's usually not their core business. They usually have hurdle rates, even for the larger companies that have easy access to capital, they usually have hurdle rates for investment that are two to three years. And maybe a water project doesn't have that return, but for Cambrian, we can still get a good return ahead of where we need to be by operating ourselves on top of the margin for the, for the product. So it just, it's a, it's a good win-win. You mentioned last time that you have 22 references, if I recall right. How many of them are under WIPA? To date, the bulk of what we've done are capital sales. 
that's just been the way we do it. And it's actually relatively recently that we put in place the water energy purchase agreement and got everything together. And I think there's been sort of a process there, but um, there's been several that are WEPAs. We're going to announce a couple more soon, but it's not the bulk of those 22 plans. So for the new ones that you would be adding in the future, is it something that you would offer every time or is it really case by case that sometimes it makes sense and sometimes not? It's really case by case. It, it's the focus of our company in that is a good value proposition for the customers and it's good for Cambrian and it's a new model in the industry, relatively new. I mean, depending on what part of the industry you're in. But if folks want to buy our equipment and operate it themselves, they can do that. So that means that you turn the wastewater treatment into a monthly fee. What am I exactly paying for? Is it the fact that you treat my water? Is it a performance base? Is it a fixed fee? Is it depending on how much I, I discharge? Is there a minimum? How does that work? We have a little bit of flexibility there, but generally speaking, if you're treating and reusing water, we generally have folks pay per gallon that we're sending back to them. And it's a price per gallon. So it's a reuse loop. You yeah, mean, you generally mean? that's, that's okay. the approach. And, and if we're generating power, we might just give that back to them and, and wrap the pricing into the cost per gallon, or we might charge per kilowatt hour, depending on the customer. And the, um, uh, you asked about a fixed fee. There is kind of a minimum, you know, under any PPA agreement, you, you have what's called a take or pay. So there's like a minimum take or pay below which if there's very little water going to our system, so we can't make that much water, we still need to be able to support the operation. So there, there is a minimum take or pay on the, on the gallons sent to us. And what is my commitment as a customer? Can I subscribe a, a WIPA and then for whatever reason, three months later, um, I change my process, I don't need water anymore. That would be surprising, but, but, but why not? Do you have like f a fixed minimum or you're so flexible with your modular equipment that you can afford to move your things around if needed? Well, the modularity of the equipment enables us to remove a good amount of the plant. And that is actually part of our competitive advantage is that we can drive down our cost of capital because a lot of the equipment can be removed. And so we don't have to take as much, you know, we're not as concerned with what's called counterparty risk, the risk of the, of the off-taker. Um, in terms of the, the, the timescale, you know, we'll do seven to 15 year agreements, but folks can have a buyout option. So they're not, you know, wedded to operating under a WEPA once they, they start it. Now they can buy it out or terminate. If they terminate, we can potentially buy the equipment, keep the equipment, but that's not something that we're expecting or that is typical. I would say though, you know, folks who are using this as a model are, are folks who are already looking at purchasing capital equipment. And so there's a similar dynamic there of if their process changes, do they still need that equipment? Well, they're usually not banking on that. Let me ask a financial question. Um, a couple of years ago, I was working for Suez at the time, and uh, we were investigating about investing in, in a couple of containers that would be leasing containers that we would bring to some specific sites and in a much less innovative way than what you're doing here. But in the same kind of spirit, we would be doing that external wastewater treatment or process water production. And the reason why, why Suez didn't go for it at the time is that that was too intensive in capital investments because that would mean that you, you become somehow a bank. So you see that maybe because it's a conservative giant, but still Suez is kind of a beast and, and didn't go that route. And you are a new entrant on that market and you go full gas in that direction 
So I'm just wondering, was the equation of Suez a couple of years ago fully wrong or did you find a golden nugget and, and, and a way to make it much more, to balance much better the risk and the capital risk on your, on your end? Yeah. Well, usually a decision to go in a given direction business-wise is very influenced by your uh, sunk costs and your fixed costs, although, and sort of your current way of doing business and your established sales channels and your customers. You know, this is a classic kind of notion of a disruptive innovation that brings together a new technology with a new business model that maybe changes the value proposition. And I do think there's a little bit of that going on with us because when you look at a, uh, some of the larger companies like Suez or, or Velia, they're principally usually selling to municipalities and to the municipal market, which is bigger, usually dependent on larger jobs to be profitable. So the smaller jobs are a little bit less interesting. And then the model you mentioned of acquiring a bunch of equipment and then leasing it out is kind of a, a leasing company model, which is not what we're doing. So we're selling to you know small, medium to large range industrial customers. And there's a project which will get created when a contract is signed. We don't have the equipment sitting around prior to that. So we just have to look at it as putting together the capital side, the solution, which in our case is proprietary and low OPEX and the operating side of it in order to price out a price per gallon rather than just lease equipment per se. And the returns are there. They're really good for our partners and our investors. The risk return profile for the customers is really good. It's not just a lease, it's a, it's a service. And so they're getting maintenance, they're getting variable pricing as a function of their production. They're getting a lot of benefits. And for us as a business, we're increasingly set up this way to do projects as a service and and, um, and our cost structure and overhead is um, appropriate to that. So I think all of that makes it a, a good business proposition, but I, I do think it's challenging for a large company, which has a different sales channel to, to tack to that quickly. Yeah, plus um, those two names you, you gave. And I think my French citizenships allows you to say that, you know, they, they are very French in their approach. <laughs> you don't disrupt that fast, uh, such giants, even the hypothetical merger is, is a good a good sign of that, but but that's another topic. Um, you mentioned the, the, the operation. That means that as an industrial player that would hire Cambrian Innovation to come under WEPA to, to treat my wastewater and to provide me water and energy, I don't have to touch at all your containers. That's just something on my land somewhere, but I don't touch it, never. Not if you don't want to. Exactly. And it's a different process. It uh, requires a little bit of different expertise. And that, that's been one of the things that I think slows adoption in the industrial market. I mean, so if you're, if you're making uh, soft drinks, you, you're not necessarily wanting to make clean water. Those are two different skill sets. So you don't have to worry about it if you, if you don't want to. So how do you operate them? Is it fully remote or do you sometimes go to the site or how does that work? It's a combination of remote and on-site. We've got ongoing operations big part of what we look to do, whether it's a, a capital sale or a, a water energy purchase agreement is, is drive down our operating effort by substituting, you know, people for data. Um, that's just a trend that's been going on in, in cross industry and, and increasingly in the water industry. We have, you know, an ability to look at the plants in real time as they're operating. We've got sensors set up. I mentioned last time we've got this um, process we call flow logic, which takes into account sensor data together with operator input together with uh, uh, if needed operator input together with some of the unique data that our, our plants generate in order to optimize input. And so that 
all of that, a good portion of it can be uh, can be done remotely. We can remote into the plants from where you know wherever we are in order to update controls. And whenever we've got a, a WEPA, we we will um, you know we wrap in controls, updates, and improvements into that over the long term. So it's a combination, but a lot a large and increasing part of it is uh, is remote. I've read somewhere in your literature that that's a way to see it is well, what you describe is to be creating a renewable micro utility. And um, we've talked last time about verticals and you said that on, on the food and beverage, you, you're, it's a strong vertical where you're present and you're aiming to enter a new one that you didn't reveal last time. I'm not going to take my chance <laughs> that time to force you into that. But when you're calling it a micro utility, it lets me think that actually that's exactly what it is. And, um, and in, in a decentralized grid, there are much more opportunities than just the industrial sites. So is that your mid-term to long-term vision to be extending this, this WIPA a bit everywhere with your systems and using them to become like a decentralized utility, a utility without network, utility without assets? Yeah, well, we can own the assets or our partners do, but yes. And, you know, if you think about like solar, that's what some of these companies are that are doing PPAs, they're distributed utilities in a way too. The difference is we're expanding it to the water industry. There is an interesting overlap between water and energy and might be something that you've gotten into in the past. I don't know in, in your podcast, but there's a huge amount of energy that's used to create water, whether it's clean water or treat wastewater or pump water. In some cases, it can be large fractions of a you know, a state's budget or a country, you know, even a country's budget, depending on you know where they're located and their geography. There's similarly a large amount of water that's needed to produce energy. So, you know, what I see us doing is kind of doing for the water industry what the PPA did for the solar industry, helping people adopt the technology that may be unfamiliar with it and have them purchase it in a way which is similar to what they're used to with the utilities. And there's a huge opportunity there. And it's an interesting mix of energy and water in our case. Well, you mentioned the solar as an example, which triggers two kinds of reactions in me, to be honest. One negative reaction, which is, I don't know if it's different in the US, I don't know at all, to be honest, but uh, in Europe, there, there was this wave of, of solar under this kind of energy purchase agreements, but that was strongly incentivized. And when the subsidies just disappeared, many companies just went broke. So <laughs> that's the, the, the negative reaction in me. And now the positive reaction in me is that that sounds like the typical path of hyper growth of any kind of startup. You push it to the market, uh, might be cash negative at the beginning, but you raise a, a huge user base. And once you get that huge user base, then the path is set and the road is all yours. And you can then leverage on that and and become profitable. So I'm just a, a bit, you know, I have the, these two sides in, in me. I think if you're referencing that, that solar example, the, the story might be better in the US than it is in Europe. Probably so. I think that at the end of the day, any business needs to stand without subsidies. It's an unfortunate fact that many businesses, more than people realize, are effectively subsidized by the government in different ways even established industries, you know, like oil and nuclear and, and things like that, you know, some loan guarantees and nuclear and all. It's actually incredible when you actually get into it. But I think in our case in the US, you know, my opinion is that the PPA was definitely accelerated by the investment tax credit, the ITC it's called. And there's a, you know, pretty big industry of folks investing in that and even taking the tax, you know, attributes out. So there's tax equity investors and then, you know, the regular infrastructure investors and all of that. But that's kind of part and parcel of infrastructure investing, I think. 
in uh, within our side of things, we have some incentives. So we benefit on the energy side. Water generally doesn't have as many incentives otherwise. And there are examples of companies that are have done. I mentioned other parts of the industry, but they do they do well with uh, water as a service. You know, my, you know, one of them is, for example, uh, uh, Seven Seas, which went public under Aqua Venture Holdings and then was uh, purchased, uh, I think, by Culligan recently. And they've got a reverse osmosis uh, desalination uh, business as a as a service that's done very well without any subsidies per se. Although it depends probably on the on the given site. So, I think the subsidy question is generic to a lot of infrastructure across the board. I don't see it as positive or negative per se. Then I could imagine that there's maybe a bit more sun in Arizona than in the south of Germany. But <laughs> I have been amazed at the fact that like solar has expanded in Canada and across places like Massachusetts. I have friends who are developing projects in Maine. It's crazy that it can still be profitable, but some of that is the subsidies, but you know, the panels are, are getting much cheaper because of those so that there is a real societal economic benefit to it. Yeah, there's a flywheel aspect, which is a bit what I was mentioning with this hypergrowth aspect. I don't know if hypergrowth is something which is achievable in water, to be honest, but let's just imagine, uh, maybe that's what you have in mind and you'll tell me, but uh, if you could raise a couple of million dollars, just... Um, in a series A, B, C, I don't know where you are, you, where, where you stand right now, and you invest that, that money just to, to populate the market everywhere with, um, with your technology, and you start launching that, that flywheel, and at some point, everything gets even more competitive in terms of cost, and then you just disrupt it, this market, which is impossible to disrupt. <laughs> yeah, no, but that is, a, I think, fairly established strategy among venture-funded companies to purchase market share effectively by you know starting off with a, a lower price and there's there's a number of companies that have done that successfully there's a lot of companies that i think have done that not successfully so you have to be careful on that but i wouldn't say that's our strategy per se you know market share via venture venture funds or, or investor dollars but it's uh the idea of the exponential benefits of an installed base i definitely agree with you on that and it's why I'm excited about where Cambrian is because, you know, we've worked hard over the years to get with a completely unique technology in a conservative industry, a, a, an installed base that is now, you know, it's, it's getting larger, it's international and we're improving our delivery, our um, analysis, our understanding of how to most benefit our customers and, and all of that. And we're, we're really thankful of some of the early adopters that worked with us in the early days. And we did have our lessons learned um, during those and, and have grown from that. So you're right that the more that you get installed, the more that the, you get sort of exponential benefits and, and um, we're excited about, about continuing that. So talking about your next steps, you've been selected to join the Elemental Accelerator. I've had on that same microphone, Elengo Teva from Nier a couple of weeks ago, and I think you are in two very different places in terms of business maturity. He's at the very beginning of his venture, very exciting and very promising path, but you are, you seem to be more advanced. You, you have achieved your product market fit. So what do you expect from Elemental? What, what is Elemental going to bring you and where is it going to bring you in the next six months to one year? Yeah, we're extremely excited to be part of the Elemental Accelerator. It's been already a lot of fun, really interesting, great, smart people, and it's just a great platform for us. And, you know, I think you mentioned earlier on that that idea of uh, the conservative 
nature of the water industry. And I think although we have 22 plants and we've got product market fit established, I think you compare us to uh, you know some of the bigger water companies out there and we might seem a little early still. And so we can still benefit from all the help we can get in any way, shape or form. With the accelerator, the, the, the key thing for us is what we've been talking about today, which is the opportunity to change a bit of the business model in distributed water to the customer's benefit through OEPA. And we're in early days with that. We've got, you know, most of our plants today that have been capital sales. We have some great and exciting opportunities that they're helping us um, move forward on to look at new verticals and new geographies for expanding our, our business model. So that really is the focus. And that's what we're hoping to get out of it. We've already gotten a lot out of it. And we're really appreciative for it. So it's the opportunity to present your product and solutions to new types of customers. So those famous new verticals that's uh, I'm really now <laughs> looking forward to discover. That is what you... because. Elemental has this very ambitious target to say that the company which are joining the program shall do a multiple on what they're doing. It's not like doing a growth of 20 or 30%. It's about making it two times, three times, 10 times what, you, what you're doing today and this within a pretty short path. And they have a proven track record of companies that achieve that. So um, is that what you're setting yourself for? Two times, three times. I'm not sure. I actually haven't seen that on their website. I... I haven't talked to them about that. I mean, our goal is impact. You know, it's not fun unless you're having an impact. And um, I think we can have an impact. We talked last time about how doing this approach of really what's, you know, used to be called industrial ecology, but now is is called circular economy and doing it practically and cost-effectively. It's like a win-win and has multiple benefits for customers and for the world. And the more that we can get our systems out there, the more water footprint we're reducing, waste we're eliminating, and carbon we're removing. So every sale is a chance for a long-term benefit. And so for us, that's what's motivating. And it's cool to try to change something in an industry which is really hard to change. You know, it's a big challenge. And uh, why not tackle big challenges? So those are the kinds of things that motivate us. I think we're going to see a lot of growth going forward. I'm really excited about where we are now. And as you said, things tend to be, or implied, (laughs) things tend to be exponential once you get the product market fit together and you get the flywheel going. What I was impressed as well with with the track record of of Elemental, you're not the first cohorts, they have a decade of history. What's impressive there is that when you look at the profile of those companies, usually when they get out of business, it's not because they get out of business, but because they they make an exit or the founder make an exit or the company gets sold to uh, another market player. So, um, you know, if I use my crystal ball, I would say in five years or in 10 years, you have two possible paths. You keep striving for that impact and you do something really big and Cambrian becomes one of these really impactful companies. And I really think you have a great product to do that and a great approach to do that. Or there's another market player which thinks that uh, organically he cannot achieve this kind of amazing things you're doing because of your agility and your your new eye, uh, almost disruptive eye on, on that market. And he makes you an offer which you cannot refuse. If you had to make a bet, what would be your your intended path? I have never, you know, myself and the, the managers and the executives and, and co-founder at Cambrian have never had an eye to one or the other. There's some people who start off saying they're going to set the company up to be acquired or set the company up for IPO. We were always just focused on validating, proving our technology in a big market, growing top line revenue, increasing gross margin and making customers happy. And that's always been 
it's always been the focus. And so, but it, you know, if you're asking me to bet, you know, I, I see something like an IPO as a as a way of um, accessing different pools of capital as a company grows. So probably more likely that than anything else, if I would think about it. But there's nothing in the plans right now. I think that was three episodes ago. I had um, a Nasdaq listed company on that podcast, and I think that was the very first time that I heard of a water company which is listed on the Nasdaq. But <laughs> maybe uh, by discussing with you, I was already discussing with the next one to, to be listed there. So um, if you had asked me uh, six months ago, if, if Suez and Veolia were going to get closer one day, I would have laughed and say, no, 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 that's not good. So, you know, you, you never never say never on that market, but it's interesting to see that um, you, you strive first for the impact. And uh, as soon as it stays as it is and you, you have fun doing it, I think that's... I don't want to, 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 say, to, to say it in a silly way, but it, it's really impressive to what you just described. And you said it much better than what I tried to, uh, to synthesize with a much more wordy sentences. Sorry for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I, I, it's nice of you to say, you know, who knows? I think the important thing is, is to uh, make things interesting, have a successful company and, and have a positive impact. And, and, and there's different ways to get that done. How many people do you, do you have right now working for Cambrian? Uh, LinkedIn was telling me 31, but I was wondering how accurate LinkedIn is. That's about right. We outsource some manufacturing. Um, I think if you include our, the total impact of that, it's higher than that. And then we work with a lot of consultants on installation of our different projects um, for site engineering and permitting and We've got construction partners as well. So if you expand the footprint to our total impact, it's um it's pretty pretty much higher than that. But that those that's that's right for the core company, which is doing the sales, the engineering, the IT, and the R and D. Which kind of manufacturing do you outsource? What do you do in house, and what do you outsource? If I might may ask, some of the very core stuff we do ourselves. You know, on the electrode side and on the um, sort of sensor side and integration and some of that, but some of the other stuff like the tanks and basically surrounding equipment, um, we've got partners to manufacture that. And you mentioned R&D. You've brought with Ecovol something really new, the Ecovol reactor. Then you revamped the MBR, making your your own, taking your own take at at somehow already a, a bestseller in that market. What's next? Well, we also have BioViper which uh, we are um, very excited about. That's an aerobic anaerobic product, which is very simple and very robust and uh, produces very little solids as a byproduct of the the treatment process, patent protected and proven. And uh, we've got a lot of effort going into the data side of things. So we mentioned FlowLogic as a key component for all of our sites that we continue to invest in and improve upon. We have some other things in the works. I wouldn't get too much into them, but there's some other market opportunities that are um, that we think are pretty big that we can get into wrapped under our model that we're currently uh, investing in. We were lucky to get some additional grants recently to do some of that work, and we're investing in some of it ourselves. And I'd be happy to talk to you about that when we're ready to launch them. And we've we've talked a bit about M&A, but with you potentially being acquired in, in a decade or, or, or so, but actually the other way around, you acquired Basswood uh, less than one year ago. So what was the rationale there and uh, how are you uh, set with the integration of a company? Yeah, the rationale was a lot of things that we've talked about. So because we are a solution provider and all sites are different, we benefit from being able to provide more solutions and equipment to create a solution. Basswood systems also fit very well with our water energy purchase agreement model and strategy in that 
they have a very low operating cost compared to MBBRs, which is a bit of a, the competing technology there. They've got lower solids production and lower energy use. So, um, you know, they're, they're comparable in cost, maybe a little bit higher, but the life cycle cost is significantly lower. So if we can finance them, we're going to benefit from those lower life cycle costs. So it fits well with the WEPA model. And um, they were in a complementary uh, uh, set of verticals to us, fixed film biological process, which we were familiar with. So there was a lot of complementarities and it, it just made a ton of sense. So we're very excited about that acquisition. So actually, that's a good way to wrap it up for that part. Um, I have to say, I'm really, I'm curious to have a discussion with you in a, in a couple of years or three or five years, just to see how much this really interesting and promising business model, which you have with your WIPA agreements, how that takes food in the water market, because it is really, it sounds like obvious in, in software, software as a service is everywhere. But I know it, it has been tried in the 80s and in the 90s in the, in the water world when some gas providers were trying to enter the, the, the water world. But at the time, probably the technology wasn't there. So there wasn't a, a technological fit. But today you, you seem to have something really promising. And yeah, I'm looking forward to discovering more of that in the future. Yeah, I, I am too. And I'm, I'm excited to see that it's growing. There's other companies that are offering it now as well. So we'll see where it all goes. It's it's all, you know, going to be based on how excited the customers are about it. And we think we're they're pretty excited based on what we've seen. So I'd love to talk to you about it again. How's your calendar in January 2023? Uh, I'll have to <laughs> check and get back to you. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's fine with you, I propose you to switch to, to the rapid fire questions. Sure. time for the rapid fire questions. So you know the rules, but I changed a bit the, the, the rules in the sense that you, you get my second set of questions, which is the honor for my guest, which uh, make a second appearance. Okay. Sounds good. So what is your favorite part of a project? Favorite part of the project is commissioning complete. Is there something that you're doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? Um, fundraising. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a burden? Uh, no, it's a distraction. Definitely not a burden. Part of the job. What is the trend in our industry that you would like to see ending and disappearing forever? The trends in the water industry that I'd like to see ending and disappearing forever. In the last four years, the rolling back of environmental regulations or enforcement of them. And my last question for today, can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? Um, only one thing. <laughs> one thing that I've learned the hard way, um, probably would say to be sure that if you make a investment in demonstrating something that you're going to, uh, have something secured on the back end if you do demonstrate it, because things can change, people can change all of that. So, you know, be careful of corporate change. Do you have a, a bad story here to, to tell? It's not a bad story, but it's just, it was a real lesson learned. When we first demonstrated our, uh, one of our technologies, we invested a lot in, in a pilot plant, like a large scale pilot plant with the tacit assumption or the expectation that should we prove it, it would be scaled to full scale. And, and uh, when we did prove it, the company we were working with sort of had different priorities at the time and went a different direction. And, and that had a 
chilling effect on our ability to sell elsewhere because a lot of folks said, oh, well, it must not have worked if those folks didn't buy it. And the answer was no, there was just a change in corporate priorities. So we got over it, we got through it. It did, it did slow us down for a bit, but um, but it was a big investment and it was a disappointment. Um, but the pilot was successful and that was the main thing. So we're here now. And how do you prevent it? Did you change something in your process to prevent this kind of, of accidents, if I might say so? It's just about being a little more careful about it, where you invest your time and your money or having that recognized through something, you know, an agreement, some kind. Fair point. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, you've been an awesome guest. I was really happy to talk to you again. I'll check your calendar, make sure that you have some time in, in January 2023. And uh, I like to see where, where that, that's heading because it's, uh, I think I mentioned it a couple of times during our, our talk today, but it's a refreshing way to see uh, our industry. So thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm honored to be a two-time participant, and you did, you did a you did a great job. Thanks, it's great. And we'll uh, yeah, I'll send you an invite. 2023. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks a lot. Okay. See you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.